Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, well, thank you. Um, thank you so much, um, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Living with Breast Cancer, updates from the 46th Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. And this is part one of Living with Breast Cancer updates from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novartis Oncology, and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. I just want to um, go over with you just um, who's on the call. So we have over 450 participants on the call today. And you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants from Algeria, Canada, Egypt, France, Ghana, India, Kenya, Laos, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call as well. And it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Kate Lathrop. And Dr. Lathrop is Associate Professor, Division of Hematology and Oncology, UT Health San Antonio Breast Medical Oncology, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio, Assistant Dean of Undergraduate Research, Long School of Medicine, UT Health San Antonio, Program Director, Medical Oncology and Hematology Fellowship Program, UT Health San Antonio. Program Director, San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, SABCS. And Dr. Lathrop will be addressing an overview of breast cancer, including genomics and genetics of breast cancer. New research presented at San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. And breast cancer-specific treatment updates, early stage breast cancer, and communicating with your healthcare team with telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lathrop. Hi, thank you for having me. And thank you for um, the interest in our symposium, uh, the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. You know, I only have uh, about 14 minutes with you guys today, so I certainly am not gonna be able to cover all of the um, you know, exciting research that we did in a in a five-day conference, but I picked out three clinical trials that I think are particularly meaningful for, for patients um, in, in our current way that we treat breast cancer. And so the first one that I want to talk about, the name of this clinical trial is called Checkmate 7FL, kind of a funny name. But um, the reason it's called Checkmate is it's with a, a type of medicine which is what's called immunotherapy. So it's a drug that's goal is to try to help activate a patient's immune system against cancer cells so that the cancer cells can then actively fight to eliminate those cells in the body. And oftentimes these therapies have a carryover effect. So they keep working even after we stop giving the medicine. And these are drugs that have been used extensively in a lot of other cancers, but it's been a little frustrating in breast cancer because we haven't really been able to um, 
you know, make immunotherapy work for all of our patients with breast cancer. Specifically, the most common type of breast cancer is estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. And immunotherapy in general has not been shown to be effective in patients with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. So this trial was really trying to take a look at, at how we could potentially select patients that would benefit from immunotherapy. And so uh, this trial was presented by Dr. Loy. And what they did was they took patients that were particularly high risk with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. So they had to be something called grade three. Um, and they did have to have estrogen receptor positivity when the pathologist looked at it under the microscope, but they could, that positivity could be quite low. It just had to be at least 1%. Um, these tumors had to be a certain stage, so they had to be at least two centimeters and or have involvement in the lymph nodes. And so the first part of the study was actually presented at ESMO in Madrid this October, and this is a follow-up of, of that clinical trial specifically looking at some of the things that we call biomarkers. So what about the cancer cells? What about the tumor environment can help us really know and select patients that should be getting this treatment? Um, because we don't want to give immunotherapy to patients who don't benefit because there's side effects to immunotherapy. Particularly, we can cause things that are called um, autoimmune diseases. And, and so we want to always sort out the patients that benefit and leave the patients that won't benefit um, alone without added toxicity. And overall, what they found in this study is that there can be, in, in an unselected population, about a 10% increase in what's called the pathologic complete response rate. And what that means is that a woman gets treated, or a man, gets treated before surgery with medicines like chemotherapy and immunotherapy goes to surgery, and at the time of surgery, there's no cancer cells that the pathologist can identify that are still active and growing and dividing. That's called a pathologic complete response rate. That was the primary endpoint or the primary thing that the scientists were evaluating in this clinical trial. But then if they go down and they, they hone in and they select, even among all the patients that were on the clinical trial, a very specific group that do express something which is called PDL1, which is a marker that we look for that we think helps predict response to immunotherapy. For patients that at least have 1% expression, that 10% doubles. It goes to 24% of patients have a complete response. And then what was important about this data that was presented is that as that expression of the PDL1, that marker that helps us identify patients for immunotherapy, as that number increases, the pathologic complete response increases. As the um, grade of the tumors, you know, how aggressive they are increases, the response increases. Now, the opposite was true for the estrogen receptor. So the more estrogen that was present, the more estrogen receptor that was present on the cancer cells, the least likely they are to respond to immunotherapy. So this is potentially a, a real game changer for our patients with early hormone receptor positive breast cancer that tend to be the patients that don't respond really well to our chemotherapy and therefore have a higher risk of recurrence later on 
um, even despite going on to be on things like aromatase inhibitors, which we refer to as hormonal therapy. And, you know, this is the largest group of patients that we see with breast cancer. So this, I think, was one of the most exciting things that was presented this year, both at ESMO, which is the European Society of Medical Oncology, and also at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. So I'm going to stay on that same theme of patients that have estrogen receptor positive breast cancer that's HER2 negative. And there was another really important trial that was presented by Dr. Hortabaji, and this trial was called the NATALIE trial. Um, now, this is an update of the NATALIE trial. So we've already gotten some results from this trial, and Dr. Hortabaji was giving us uh, an update with a little bit more time watching patients on this trial. So the, the patients that enrolled in this trial had at least stage two or three breast cancer. They did not have metastatic breast cancer. So they didn't have very, very early small, and they didn't have metastatic. They were kind of that group in the middle. And they tended to have a few characteristics that made them higher risk for having a recurrence after their initial treatment. Um, they could have uh, what's called an oncotype that was a little bit high, which looks at some of the genetic makeup of the tumor. They could be, again, grade three, which is a more aggressive tumor, or they had involvement of their lymph nodes. And so those patients were randomized. So half the patients were treated with standard of care, which is uh, with a type of medicine called a aromatase inhibitor. So uh, drugs you might recognize like letrozole or anastrozole for at least five years. And then the other group got the same medicines. They got an aromatase inhibitor, but then they added this drug, which is called ribocyclib. Ribocyclib is a CDK4-6 inhibitor, is the name of the, the type of medicine it is. It's a targeted medicine that goes and interferes with the ability of the cancer cells to replicate. And we know in the, in the setting where women have metastatic breast cancer, these drugs are quite effective and they decrease the, um, the growth of the cancer in the metastatic setting and they allow women to stay on these medicines without the cancer growing for longer. So we know these drugs are effective in the metastatic setting. So the whole goal is can we move these medicines a little earlier on in the treatment setting and can we prevent women from developing metastatic disease? Because obviously that's our, our goal is to prevent the development of metastatic disease, which we all know unfortunately is not curable yet. So if we can keep that event from happening, that's super important to our patients. And so Dr. Hortabaji was giving us some updated analysis of this data and what, what they presented is that for women who receive the ribocyclib, their risk of having a recurrence of their breast cancer was reduced by about 25% versus being on the hormonal therapy alone, which is significant. Now, these women stayed on this medicine for three years, um, and they continued the hormonal therapy for at least five years. Um, now, the women who had stage one disease, their change in that risk was about 2%. For women who had stage three disease, that change was about three, I'm sorry, 5%. So for women who had a, a higher stage, they actually got more benefit of, of being on this medicine. Um, and 
The other thing this trial is looking at is, is can we affect, you know, how long women live? And at least right now, we're not able to tell that because we haven't been watching these women long enough. But we are able to say that the risk of developing cancer away from the breast was reduced by 25%. So that's a really promising finding. And as we watch these patients longer, uh, likely we'll be able to see that benefit and how long women are, are living with their breast cancer. And then of course, whenever we add a medicine to another medicine, we always need to talk about toxicities because we wanna make sure those added toxicities are you know, in proportion to the benefit that our patients are receiving from being on these medicines. And ribocyclib is a generally well-tolerated medicine. We do need to watch um, some, some cardiac issues, particularly with the way the electrical system works in the heart, but that's usually pretty easy to do at the beginning. And they didn't find any new safety concerns that they didn't already know about from the settings where women are on these medicines in the metastatic setting. Most common side effect was joint discomfort, some nausea, some fatigue. Um, so I just wanna wrap up with a third trial. Um, and this trial is called the Catherine trial. And again, this was also an update from some data that we already had. And the Catherine trial is um, in HER2 positive breast cancer patients. And this is a really important trial because what it set up is this idea that we can treat women before surgery with a set of medicines, evaluate how they do, and then potentially tailor their therapy after surgery based on how they respond to the first part of our treatment. So for all women on the Catherine trial, they had at least two centimeter size uh, breast mass that was HER2 positive and, and or had involvement of the lymph nodes. They were treated with a regimen that we routinely use of two chemotherapy medicines and two medicines that are directed towards that HER2 receptor or that HER2 signal. So those medicines are called uh, Herceptin and Pertuzumab um, with a chemotherapy backbone. And then they, for women who had, again, that complete pathologic response, so they go to surgery and there's no active tumor left, they kept them on the current regimen, which is Trastuzumab and Pertuzumab. And they completed a whole year of those medicines. But for women who did not, completely respond, who still had some cancer cells that were left and looked like they were able to divide and replicate, then they were switched to a different medicine. And, the re and that medicine is called uh, TDM1. So the idea was that if there's still cancer cells alive and dividing after six cycles of you know, a multi-agent regimen, um, potentially there's, there's what we call micrometastatic disease. So these little individual cancer cells that can get out through the lymphatic systems or through the blood system, and those might be resistant to our medicines too. And we know from other trials, those women had a higher risk of developing metastatic disease or disease away from the breast. So those women who did not have a complete response were switched to TDM1. And what was presented at San Antonio was um, the long-term follow-up of these patients. So this was 8.4 years of follow-up, which is 
which is a significant amount of time and updated from our last analysis that was about five years ago. And what they found was that the risk of having a recurrence of the breast cancer was about 67% in women who um, did not re that did not switch, and that changed by 13.7%. So for women who continued on the trastuzumab arm, there was um, about 67% of the patients remained without disease versus 80% of the patients that we switched. So that's a huge absolute benefit for our patients, a significant amount of women who did not reoccur. Um, so this really showed that switching these patients was of significant benefit, and we've used this model in other, other tumor types. And I'm at time. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Lethrop. That was really um, outstanding, uh, really stellar. And, I, and you also set the stage for today's program um, by really um, identifying three important trials that people want to hear about and, um, and giving them the context for it. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next um, speaker is Dr. Wade Smith. And Dr. Smith is a breast cancer specialist, assistant clinical professor, Department of Medical Oncology and Therapeutics Research, City of Hope. And Dr. Um, Smith will be addressing younger and older people living with breast cancer, new treatment approaches for metastatic breast cancer, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, clinical trial updates, and guidelines for fair telehealth telemedicine appointments, um, including technology, prepared list of questions, um, quality of life concerns, and key questions to ask, and, and, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Smith. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Uh, happy to be on today. And so, yep, I'll be following up with further discussion of this 46 San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. For those of you that don't know, it's, it's really the world's largest breast cancer meeting. Started in 1977 at an airport hotel with just 30 attendees, uh, basically community oncologists meeting with basic researchers to kind of ask questions in the very formative days of breast oncology. Since then, it's grown to 10,000 people every year attending, over 1,700 abstracts presented. So. Um, it really is a pivotal event in the, in the year for all of us. So um, just to kind of start off with, um, you know, I think probably the, uh, the takeaway from, from, to, from this year's uh, meeting was really, if there is a takeaway, is, is how can we get away with less? You know, how can we decelerate uh, some of the intensity of, of uh, therapy that we have evolved over time? And there, there have been some studies looking at that. Um, and, and one question I was asked is, you know, how, how are we differentiating between younger and older patients living with breast cancer? And I think that, you know, with younger patients, there's, there's just, there's just a different, many of them are in a different chapter of life. Uh, childbearing, uh, fertility um, is always an issue to take into account when devising a treatment plan. Having um, young children that they're also having to take care of, you know, either um, some of them are working, really the sole providing breadwinner of the family, so there's a lot of financial um, strain associated with that. And then obviously when we talk about our older patients, um, you know, we, we deal with obvious, obviously, you know, in some cases cognitive decline in some of our older patients, you know, a heavy reliance on family members for everything from transportation to 
um, you know, helping drug administration and so forth. Uh, there can also just be attitudes, you know, um, an attitude, perspective on life, you know, what's, what's valuable, what is a improvement in overall survival, what, you know, is 3% valuable, is, is a 7%, or rather is a, um, you know, three-month uh, benefit valuable, is a, you know, 12-month benefit valuable. And there's also cultural influences. There are some cultures where, you know, it's, it's the, the older patients tend to be kind of left out of the main decision-making, and that can be kind of a sticky road to navigate um, as somebody who's trying to attain informed consent, whereas, you know, the children really step up and kind of make decisions on the part of the, the family member patient. So, so there, there are a lot, a lot of differences. Um, but I think, you know, um, I think in both cases, oftentimes uh, looking for alternative treatments to decrease the likelihood of toxicity or the intensity of toxicity is always valued. Either a young person who has you know, a livelihood and a needs to stay at work and maybe uh, having a chronic upper extremity swelling would be more impairing than somebody who is not. Um, to, you know, somebody who may be very kind of borderline performance status and tipping them over would be detrimental. So, you know, and as, as an example, there were a couple of trials that kind of addressed looking at, at giving less and specifically, you know, with upper extremity swelling that can sometimes be the result of having surgery where we remove lymph nodes and give radiation afterwards. There was, for instance, the IDEA trial that really looked to see, you know, whereas before we thought a good prognosis stage one patient, age 65 and older, maybe we cannot give radiation after surgery and um, for early stage, you know, stage one cancers. And so the IDEAL trial moved it up to 50 to see if, if, if these patients could potentially be spared. And actually, the, the, the data results came out very favorable. So... I think this is a discussion to be had between radiation oncologists about whether we can consider more patients for the sparing of radiation therapy after surgery. There's also the E4112 trial, E4112, that looked at omitting adjuvant radiation for certain DCIS patients. That's non-invasive stage zero breast cancer patients. And those patients who had favorable MRI findings and low uh, oncotype uh, DX testing uh, for um, you know, for, uh, you know, for the purpose of uh, testing to see risk, these patients were found to have um, the ability to spare radiation therapy after having lumpectomy. And, um, and so these, these are another group of patients that may benefit for DCIS. There was also the NRG NSABP51, and uh, this, this looked at, you know, giving patients chemotherapy before their surgery and then having you know, lymph nodes uh, cancer-free, you know, confirmed cancer-containing lymph nodes cancer-free after giving chemotherapy before surgery, um, could we spare them radiation? And actually, favorable results came out of that. So, um, again, uh, by omitting radiation in some of these lower-risk patients, uh, we decrease the risk of chronic arm swelling, lymphedema down the road, which is important for, I think, both uh, younger and elderly patients. Um, I was also asked just to, uh, you know, new treatment approaches for metastatic breast cancer that presented at San Antonio. And there was one uh, study called the Inavo 120. And this is a study looking at essentially um, patients who uh, have advanced breast cancer that are hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, and uh, giving a medicine, uh, a PI3 kinase inhibitor medicine, uh, in addition to um, a CDK4-6 medicine, tablocyclib and Fazlodex or Fulvestron, 
looking to see if adding this medicine to patients who um, carried a PIK3CA mutation, whether they benefit. And what we found is a more than doubling of the time in which a tumor would progress with an actual trend towards overall survival. So specifically, um, we were seeing 15 months compared to 7.3 months, the time in which uh, tumor progressed. And that's, uh, that's significant. And so, um, so, you know, we also saw a very high response rate, meaning the likelihood of the tumor even responding, uh, 58.4 versus 25%. So this, this is exciting. Some have even claimed this to be kind of a new standard of care for the subset of advanced hormone receptor positive patients who have the PIK3CA mutation. So um, it'll be interesting to see kind of what impact that has going forward. And then um, I was also asked to talk about just preventing managing side effects, discomfort, pain, and so forth. And, you know, one study kind of jumped out, one called the AMBER Cohort Sleep Study, and there's 1,400 women that really assess sleep health. And so, you know, all of us know that sleep hygiene, sleep health is, is very uh, important, um, in particular around the time of a new diagnosis. That's where we can see disruption both from stress, anxiety, as well as, you know, starting new endocrine therapies like tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor. So, you know, there are some interesting findings. It seemed as though amount of time sleep did not really um, impact quality of life, but the quality of sleep as, you know, measured by sleep efficiency um, and other disturbances uh, was impacted. So, um, so you know, certainly um, uh, it's important that, um, you know, we address this with patients. We really have that as part of the interview. 35% uh, of patients that we see are, are on sleep aid, are on sleep medicine. And so what we can do um, to help, uh, you know, address that um, at the core level is important. I also kind of look at, you know, preventing managing side effects, symptoms, kind of correlating to what class of drug, what class of therapy we're giving, right? So we've, we've moved away from chemotherapy. Now we have kind of more selective, more targeted therapies, and one of which is called an antibody drug conjugate. So this is an immune, and basically an immunoglobulin that's conjugated with a, with a drug, with a chemotherapy molecule on this immunoglobulin. And it's targeted delivery of a payload uh, to the tumor cell is the idea. And um, many in the audience that probably are familiar with some of these drugs, trade names like Cadsila and HER2, Trodelby. And so the whole idea is, is, is discrimination between healthy cells and cancer cells. And it seems as though the evolution has made these more effective, but unfortunately also kind of more toxic, more side effects associated with these. And, and it does just take some awareness on, on the part of the patient, uh, or rather on the part of the provider um, with the involvement of the patient. And, um, you know, we see, you know, really 90% of treatment-related adverse events in this class of, of medicine. So even though it doesn't cause the, the uh, complete hair loss in this kind of, in most cases, severe nausea, with some exception, that classic chemotherapy does, you know, it, it, you know these can have other, you know, detrimental side effects, including pneumonitis, uh, in the case of uh, in HER2, as well as uh, Trodelby can cause, you know, severe neutropenia and diarrhea. And so, um, you know, they're just, you know, I, I think in, the, in reviewing some of the abstracts presented, there, there are just ideas put forward as to how to monitor for these, you know, rare but potentially, you know, devastating adverse events like, you know, inflammation of the lung that can be life-threatening, such as, you know, wear, wearing a device that can monitor oxygen level and so forth. So I think, you know, there's going to be more to be done in terms of uh, addressing this and hopefully more of a trend towards 
uh, you know, better tolerated and not just more effective medicines. And um, so in addition, uh, there's also, you know, other uh, hormone receptor positive therapeutics. Uh, you know, Elicestran is one new medicine that's been approved. Some of you may be familiar. It really uh, has taken Fazlodex off the table for many patients as it uh, doesn't require an intramuscular injection and as well, um, uh, it can have some mild nausea though, however. So, you know, uh, there's some, some studies looking at, you know, how, how to uh, remedy that. There's also, um, you know, uh, there's a new drug um, that, um, that also has been recently approved and um, capybacertib is, is what this medicine is called. And it's, um, it's a new drug that um, is also oral that's been shown effective. Um, however, also for these patients um, can run the risk of diarrhea. So again, this all needs to be monitored. The immunotherapy, uh, Dr. Lethrow talked a little bit about it um, in terms of just what we do to monitor. But again, whether we're looking at a PD-1 or PD-L1 or CTLA-4, uh, you know, we're seeing significant um, side effects and complications for some of these patients. So we really have to be you know, careful in who we choose these immunotherapy medicines such as Keytruda for. You know, for instance, with Keytruda, we can see hypothyroidism or low thyroid in up to 13% of patients. So we just have to, um, you know, be monitoring for that as well as um, adrenal insufficiency, which can be life-threatening in some cases, 2.3%. So um, that all uh, kind of plays into how we monitor for toxicity, largely uh, with reference to what um, class of drug we're using. So with regard to uh, clinical trial updates, um, uh, I should also mention that there is, um, you know, another study that I think is of, of pertinence. It's called the Preferable Effect Study. And this showed the beneficial effect of exercise. And so this was a large multinational study that basically randomized patients to usual care or, um, or uh, basically... Uh, a system of exercises include aerobic and um, balance and other um, other areas of exercise that showed significant improvement at the six-month primary endpoint. Patients were shown to have improved social functioning, uh, decreased pain and dyspnea. So there was actually translation to benefit for these patients, you know, outside of uh, you know uh, just one would what one would typically expect with exercise. So uh, that certainly is, uh, you know, something to be considered. Uh, Seventy-plus percent of these patients had disease in the bones, and there were only, only two significant adverse events, two bone fractures that were not associated with um, pathologic lesions. So, um, so certainly that's uh, an area that we want to encourage. Um, there were some clinical trial updates that Dr. Lethrop went over a couple. I'll mention a couple others. There's her 2 climb which this basically looks at adding an oral drug to catnib to um, cadsila, and this actually showed prolonged time to progression as well as a benefit for patients with brain metastases. We're still trying to figure out kind of how to integrate this into the algorithm of treating these patients, but I think it's, it's, it's testament to how effective this oral drug to catnib is for controlling against, you know, uh, brain involvement from HER2-positive breast cancer. There was also uh, the Tropion Breast-01, that looked at her uh, hormone receptor positive HER2 negative patients. And again, using one of the antibody drug conjugates uh, that I talked about, this one called DATO DXD, that um, 
that basically was more effective uh, from a safety and quality of life um, as well as providing uh, quality of life benefit compared to standard chemotherapy. And this is a medicine that targets the, the trope 2 protein. So it, it kind of adds to um, another drug called Trodelvi that targets trope 2 that certainly is going to kind of find our way in, find its way into our um, into our armamentarium of treating patients with hormone receptor positive breast cancers. There was also the Monarch 3 that looked at uh, using Verzenio or Bemacyclib uh, with an aromatase inhibitor first line, and uh, this showed the final. Um, this was looking at final overall survival. There was um, no statistical significance reached, but however, it's still showing a very favorable. Um, you know, uh, time in which disease progressed for patients, you know, newly diagnosed with hormone receptor positive breast cancer. And then um, I think Natalie and Catherine was talked about. So um, I would then just kind of go on and talk a little bit about, um, I was asked to talk about guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine. So we still are using this quite a bit. Obviously during COVID, um, a good percentage of our follow-ups um, were carried out with uh, this technology. And again, you know, technology requirements, we all know you need to have, you know, uh, good technology on the part of the patient as well as the office provider. And there are just kind of other considerations I think we continue to run, to consider and run into. You know, there's everything from, um, you, know, uh, obtain, you know, obtaining consent, discussing reimbursement, um, and, you know, privacy expectations, whether patients are out of state, which can be a hindrance in California. Um, so we're, you know, that prevents us from carrying out a lot of telehealth visits. Um, and then, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, it, but of, overall it's been, a, a, I think, a real big benefit. So many of our patient patients, we really need to, you know, for patients who are doing well in oral therapy, we, we need to review their labs. We need to be able to see them, see that they, you know, they're looking good and able to answer questions and, and that can all be carried out with telehealth. So we're able to save a lot of drive time for our patients. And, um, and uh, so we, we still use it a lot. I think, you know, quality of life, there wasn't really any update regarding telehealth this year, but last year uh, there was, you know, certainly a preference seen for telehealth and uh, NYU did a study for the uh, radiation oncology department. And it found that, you know, patients who were following up with telehealth, an equal number were being enrolled onto trials. Um, you know, overall, you know, really positive uh, outcome seen. Uh, less likely to actually establish care, though. So for an initial consultation, I think we do get some patients who, um, you know, are kind of shopping around or maybe are just noncommittal about starting treatment. So that's always something to, to take into account. And then um, just mentioning open notes, I think having, you know, medical record transparency access is important. Um, I think, um, you know, patients being able to ask questions, contacting their, their providers directly is important. I think, you know, I think there's a little bit of management of expectations for some patients. Um, you know, for some patients, it can, it can be a bit of a challenge to have, you know, uh, complete access and, and it can kind of have them kind of, um, you know, being a little bit of a hamster wheel as they're dealing with, you know, anxiety and coping with a new diagnosis. And that just requires just extra kind of handholding on our end to, to have them adapt to this, this, new, uh, this new means of, of, you know, being able to access one's own health care. But overall, I, I really think it's been great. Patients ask very knowledgeable, detailed questions. It's made our office visits, um, you know, much smoother, more efficient when we're able to deal with a lot of things in real time um, by means of patients, you know, seeing their labs, 
uh, doing a um, patient portal message that gets answered uh, with a quick turnaround. So we've been happy with that uh, where I'm at. So I think that about does it for me, and um, I'll return it back to you, Dr. Mesner. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Smith. That was really an outstanding presentation. Um, just lovely. It's just really outstanding, stellar. Um, lots of content. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So uh, thank you so much. I um, really appreciate your presentation. And um, our next speaker is Ms. Selig Weir, and um, she's an oncology social worker on the Long Island Program, and Long Island Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And uh, she'll be addressing uh, Cancer Care's free programs and services and our Hope Line and how to access our website as well. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Selik Yar. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. And it's a pleasure to present alongside with Dr. Lathrobe and Dr. Smith. Um, again, my name is Melissa Seliquiar. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the Long Island Program Coordinator and Oncology Social Worker at Cancer Care. And I'd like to briefly just tell you about Cancer Care. Um, Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include case management, counseling and support groups, educational workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. Uh, to become connected to any of Cancer Care services, anyone interested can call Cancer Care's National Hope Line to speak to an oncology social worker. And I'll touch more upon that. Um, I'd like to take this um, part of the presentation and just address some psychosocial impacts of a cancer diagnosis um, and seeking support services. Um, there are many aspects of a breast cancer diagnosis that may be addressed throughout psychosocial support services, making informed treatment decisions, quality of life concerns, clinical trials, fertility options, and communication with one's medical team are important topics that can be discussed with an oncology social worker. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a support network, may help to relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis. It can be beneficial to determine ways to approach these challenges that may surface. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. Individuals diagnosed with breast cancer may also choose to supplement existing social networks by joining a support group. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. And just to highlight some of uh, cancer care services, we do have um, an array of services, including our case management services, which is offered nationally to patients, post-treatment survivors, and caregivers affected by cancer. We offer a short-term strengths-based approach to case management, where the social worker will work with the clients in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. We also do have online support groups. Our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and you can register on our website to join an online support group. 
And some of the support groups we have that are pertaining to breast cancer could be our patient support group, our post-treatment survivorship support group, metastatic breast cancer patient support group, as well as triple negative breast cancer patient support group. And we do also have some support groups for caregivers as well that are in need of support. Cancer Care also has a wide array of reading materials and information related to breast cancer. This includes recorded Connect Education workshops, Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care podcast, publications about breast cancer, as well as stories of help and hope and breast cancer resources. We have some additional uh, services we offer. Um, Dr. Lathrub and Dr. Smith touched upon clinical trials. We do have a great um, resource for sharing my trial list that matches people with open clinical trials near their preferred treatment location. And this can be something also that our staff are, um, can assist with getting connected and navigating and getting acclimated to the website. And just to wrap up, um, if anyone is interested in Cancer Care's uh, services, finding out more or getting connected, you can call Cancer Care's Hopeline, and that is 1-800-813-4673 or 1-800-813-HOPE. And our website is cancercare.org, where you can visit to get more information. Well, thank you so much, um, Ms. Aliquia. Um, wonderful presentation, and I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A as well, and just wonderful resources for our participants. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A. I'm going to ask Regina to explain to you how to queue up for questions, uh, and uh, we'll start the questions. Regina. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. This question um, for Dr. Lathrop. If a premenopausal woman will go on an AI for five to 10 years, and she is in her late 40s, wouldn't it make the most sense to remove ovaries and tubes rather than receive monthly injections of Lupron or Zolodex? Wouldn't that make take away any doubt if she still produces estrogen? Sure. So that's actually um, quite a big area to discuss. So the question is about how do we optimally provide ovarian function suppression in women prior to going through menopause. There's um, three ways to do this. One is to give medicines that shut the ovarian function down, which are GnRH agonists, things like Lupron, Gocerolide, Zolodex might have been terms people have heard. One is a subcutaneous injection monthly. One is actually more of a pellet that's put into the fat um, also monthly. Um, now, these are reversible. So if patients do not tolerate ovarian suppression because of side effects, things like uh, vaginal dryness, hot flashes, hair thinning, um, menopause symptoms that are not well controlled with, um, you know, other interventions we can, we can possibly do, then it's reversible. We stop the injections and the ovarian function will return unless the patient has gone through a natural menopause. Um, you know, obviously taking out the ovaries is permanent. So if you have a very young woman, maybe somebody in their early 30s, um, and you want to give them ovarian suppression for, you know, at least five years, um, taking out their ovaries would create permanent early ovarian um, suppression, and that has long-term side effects. It has cardiac implications. It has um, problems with developing osteoporosis, increased fracture risk. 
So it's a conversation that patients should have with their physicians about, you know, really whether, you know, what's the duration of ovarian suppression they're looking at, how old are they, did they receive chemotherapy prior or not, um, which can contribute to ovarian suppression. Um, so I, I think it's, it, there's lots of things to consider there, and some women will will choose to do uh, removal of the ovaries, which is called an oophorectomy, whereas other women would uh, prefer to continue on, on monthly injections. Uh, there is some evaluation of whether we can push out to every three months. That's not approved really yet. Um, and then the other question is, how do we monitor to make sure that we actually have achieved ovarian suppression? And um, that's an open question, too. Most of the assays we'd have to do are these super sensitive assays looking at estrogen um, in the bloodstream, which is estradiol. And a lot of labs don't perform those very sensitive assays. And we also didn't do it on the clinical trials. So we don't know whether we really need and to what level we need to suppress the ovaries. So that's a long answer, but it's a big, big question. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and a question uh, for Dr. Uh, Smith. Um, when do you order the Seriana PET instead of the regular PET? Um, so I'm the, are kind of referring to, um, like, for instance, a, a different, uh, like, uh, for instance, an FES PET. Um, I, I think, I, I think that the answer to probably um, yeah, what we're talking about, FES, it's been, you know, I think it's, it's again, it, it basically looks at the estrogen receptor expression as opposed to glucose uptake in terms of determining, um, you know, activity and thus um, confirming uh, metastatic breast cancer. And I, I find it useful in patients, for instance, who have, um, you know, a low-grade um, metastatic cancer such as maybe a classic lobular metastatic cancer that doesn't have a very high FDG uptake. So, you know, PET has not been very helpful, and we may not even have any measurable disease on CT imaging. So I have had success using um, the FES theory on a PET in that instance. Um, I think outside of that, I tend to routinely more use FDG PET, but we do have this at our center and, and um I always have a few patients that I order it on um, since it's became avail become available both on and off study. So, um, yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks. And another question uh, for Dr. Leithrop. Can tumor cancer characteristics in the breast differ from those in the cancerous nodes, i.e. ER positive, PR positivity, et cetera? Um, is the question whether it can differ in the breast than in the lymph nodes? So can tumor cancer characteristics in the breast differ from those in the cancerous nodes? Okay. Yeah. So, okay, sure. Generally, the, the main receptors we look at, the estrogen, progesterone, and HER2, do track between the primary tumor and the uh, when the tumor spreads to the regional lymph nodes, so the lymph nodes underneath the armpit um, in an area that we call the axilla. Generally, that those do correlate. Now, um, one thing that doesn't necessarily correlate is that PDL1 expression that I was speaking about. So um, some of the markers that we look for 
for potential response to immunotherapy can be different whether you look at it in the lymph node versus the primary tumor. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question from Ms. Soliquar. Um, do, does Cancer Care have a one-page flyer or a brochure that I can provide to my patients? That's yes, from that's a, a uh, patient navigator, a breast navigator. Oh, that's yeah. That's a great question. So we do have um, brochures that we can send either to you know, individuals interested in our services as well as professionals. And we can send up to 100 in bulk to professionals. So professionals can also call our Hopeline um, and uh, you know just get assistance with having that sent out. Also going to our website at cancercare.org, they're able to directly um, you know just submit for that uh, publication to be sent out and the amount, um, the quality there. Excellent. Thank you. And um, thanks. And so please just go ahead and contact us on the Hopeline 1-800-813-4673. And also you'll all be getting all these. Any numbers or websites that we gave out or even didn't mention during the program, we will give them to you. Um, you'll be getting a survey monkey um, a few days after the program. And so it'll, well, you'll have all that information. And please do follow up with that. Um, and um, So um, this would be for Dr. Lathrop. Were there any trials or trial updates for triple negative breast cancer discussed at the symposium? So the, the very quick answer to that is yes. Um, definitely um, had quite a few novel therapeutics looked at in triple negative breast cancer. Um, this, I, I would say that, you know, the, the big late-breaking trials were more in the estrogen receptor, hormone receptor positive setting this year. Um, but, you know, triple negative breast cancer is a, um, a type of breast cancer that tends to be harder to treat. The, um, it tends to reoccur in, in a higher percentage and at an earlier stage. And we tend to have less therapies that work well for it. So it's definitely an area of intense interest for research. And so there's a lot of research looking at novel targets, so trying to figure out if we can find other proteins that are specifically um, active in triple negative breast cancers that then we can um, design drugs to go directly to, that, to those cells and um, keep them from replicating. So yes, there were, I didn't go over any of them today, but there, there definitely was a lot of work looking at novel therapeutics in triple negative breast cancer. Well, thank you, and we will be doing um, a San Antonio triple negative breast cancer updates as well, so stay tuned. Um, so um, uh, so um, this question is from one of our participants. Um, for Dr. Um, Smith, regarding lymphedema treatment and preventing interventions, um, any new developments to manage the potential debilitating side effects of lymphedema? Well, I think I think at our center, uh, for many patients who are high risk, we get them in to see the lymphedema therapy um, team. You know, even before surgery, sometimes or soon thereafter, just as a you know, it's a kind of a baseline evaluation and to establish continuity. 
um, and just instruction and, you know, um, sleep fitting and all these things uh, for when traveling. Um, so I think, I think obviously the, the, pre the prevention aspect is good. There's also some, some, you know, testing that's available in office testing that can kind of determines one, one's risk that has shown very various degrees of, um, you know, certainty. I think, um, you know, for patients who develop it and who have, you know, you know, recurrent, uh, for instance, in infection, cellulitis, who, who have clinically um, problematic lymphedema, there, there, is, there is actually uh, at certain centers the option of um, taking lymph nodes and transplanting lymph nodes um, into, into the axilla to help assist with lymph drainage. And, um, and I think that that's something that could be addressed uh, with your breast surgeon if it were to reach that point. But um, yeah, we're, we're very proactive. Thank you so much. And another question uh, for Dr. Lysrup, any thoughts on adrenal fatigue management? On the treatment of fatigue? Adrenal uh, fatigue management. A, adrenal fatigue. Um, it's just adrenal insufficiency, maybe? Or, so immunotherapies can affect the adrenal glands, mm -hmm. if, if that's the question. Um, and it's a pretty common side effect of immunotherapies after um, disorders of the thyroid in um, some insulin insufficiency or diabetes type of um, side effects, the adrenal glands um, are then the next most likely thing to be affected. And um, it causes blood pressure issues. It can cause um, lots of problems with the endocrine system in our body, the hormones that we produce. And the treatment for that usually is to either give a break in the immunotherapy. Sometimes we have to permanently stop it. Um, start on high-dose steroids to kind of stop the autoimmune process. But then some of these women, unfortunately, have to stay on um, steroids long-term because the adrenal glands make our normal steroids in our body, and so we have to supplement that with medicines like such as, as prednisone. So if that was, I'm not sure I answered the question, though. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have, I'll uh, take one more question um, for Dr. Um, Smith, referring to the Catherine trial for her two positive cancer in the group that without complete response were patients equally divided into the group that received um, PDM1 and the group that continued on traditional therapy for her two positive? Let me see if I understand the question. So for Catherine, and I invite Dr. Lethrop to jump in too because I know she kind of took a deep dive into this, but um, Catherine, the question is, for patients who had an incomplete pathologic response, uh, was there equal random? Was there kind of equal randomization to those who either stayed on um, trastuzumab or, or um, started Kedzila as their no, traditional therapy for question? Question? Was yep, the randomization yes. equal? Yes. Yes. Equally, were patients equally divided into, so I'll repeat it, referring to the Catherine trial for her two positive cancer in the group without complete response, were patients equally divided into the group that received TDM1 and the group that continued on traditional therapy for her two positive? Yes, they were, they were randomized one-to-one. Yeah. -one. yeah. Yep. Okay, excellent.
Um, and I should let mention, well, well no, this is a part two of the series on January 17th on updates in the treatment of estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive, and HER2 positive breast cancer on the 46th annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. And now I'm going to ask each of our speakers to provide just a takeaway for each of you to have. Um, and I also want to thank our speakers. You've been really phenomenal. I also want to thank our participants for asking such really great questions. I'm going to start with Dr. Lathrop, just a takeaway for people to take away from today's program. Yeah, sure. And maybe I'll just broaden it out to take away from SABCS. I mean, as was previously mentioned by Dr. Smith, this, this started in a small hotel um, in San Antonio and has grown into the largest breast conference in the world. Uh, half of our, our attendees are um, international. We have a huge advocacy program as well. We've trained uh, hundreds of advocates at SABCS through the efforts of some of our, you know, advocate organizations. And uh, we really try to represent every part of the continuum for trying to find a cure for breast cancer, from early stage through metastatic supportive care in the lab to the clinic, um, and include anybody who is part of that effort. Excellent. Thank you. So, thank you so much. Very inspiring. And uh, Dr. Um, Smith. Uh, yeah, thank, thank you for having me on, Dr. Mesner, and uh, my thanks to the, the other presenters um, for contributing. And um, I would just say that, um, you know, it's, uh, it was a, a good, interesting meeting. I think there are several key takeaways. I would say be proactive on the part of the patient. If, you, if you're having problems, if you're having issues, if you're having uncontrolled pain, you're having, um, you know, improperly managed side effects, definitely be vocal about it. Non-compliance is all too much of a problem, and as we've converted more to oral therapies, non-compliance uh, does have a, a direct correlation with inferior outcome. And we're finding that a lot of these medicines can be dose-reduced and, and maintain equal efficacy, such as the you know the CDK4-6 inhibitors that we've seen uh, with these large randomized trials. So you know there's uh, there's always room for making adjustments. So just you know maintain that that um, communication with your provider. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Ms. Uh, Salik, we are, um, if you'd like to comment as well, just to take away. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. And uh, it was a pleasure being here today, and I, I've learned a lot. And I'd also just like to, you know, just take away that uh, cancer, um, you know, just going through a cancer diagnosis can be a lot to manage both emotionally and physically. Um, so just knowing that you're not alone, like, you know, seeking support, um, you know, that is available and accessible. And, you know, just being able to, you know, have that opportunity to connect, um, whether with others, whether in a one-on-one -on -one space, um, whether, you know, just having, like, information. Um, it's something that can go along in addition to your treatment team. Well, thank you so much. And I do want to mention to all of you, because many of you asked um, a question about um, if you missed the program or want to hear it again, um, it is available as a podcast um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for at least a year, um, if not longer. Um, it'll have closed caption on it, so give it a couple of days. It'll be up on our website, um, and you'll be able to um, you'll be able to listen to it as often as you wish. Um, again, I want to thank um, all of our speakers. Um, really, they're phenomenal. I want to also thank all of you for asking such great questions. And although we've done this program before, I have to say that um, this particular group of participants really asked really 
wonderful questions. And we obviously didn't get to everyone's questions, so I want to comment on that as well. So um, for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who are still in queue and hope to get your question asked, you know, answered, and for those of you who are thinking of a question, for all of you, please go back to your team healthcare team. They know you the best, and they are the ones who can, um, they have your, their, your records in front of them, and they can address um, your question um, you know, to best meet your needs in terms of what your exact treatment and what your cancer looks like. So please take this information. You've learned something from the program today, so take this information back to your treating healthcare team and they are there to, to help you um, to, um, to answer your questions. Remember, your healthcare team doesn't just consist of your oncologist, surgeon, or radiation oncologist. It also consists of um, uh, oncology nurse, oncology social worker, uh, patient navigator, financial navigator. So a whole team of people. So you can ask any question. And if the person who asked the question of doesn't have the answer, they can connect you with somebody in their institution that could potentially help you. So, and again, I think as Ms. Salikvia said, um, we wouldn't want any of you to leave the program today feeling you're alone. Although, of course, one often does feel alone. There are moments when one does feel alone. But we now want you to know you're part of the community support. We're all just a telephone call away, including your healthcare team. And so be sure to take advantage of the fact that, um, that they're there for you. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.